This is Cody Turner, and you are listening to Tent Talks. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Professor Evan Prokoski. Dr. Prokoski is currently an assistant professor of political science at the University of Connecticut, and his research focuses on terrorism, insurgency, and violent and nonviolent resistance. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Prokoski about some of his work. Some of the main topics that we hit include terrorist technological innovations, such as suicide bombings, syringe gas attacks, aerial hijackings, and cyber attacks. Then we also talk about domestic terrorism and what a group needs to do or what its aims need to be in order for that group to qualify as a terrorist group. We talk about the logic of strategic nonviolence. We discuss the fragmentation of armed groups, the history of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, as well as some other topics too. I'll embed a link to Professor Pekoski's website in the show notes if you're interested in checking out more of his work. And I think that's it. I appreciate Professor Pekoski taking the time to sit down with me, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. I thought we could start just with a deceptively simple question. How did you get into political science and how did you come to focus on terrorism, insurgency, nonviolent and violent uprisings and the rest? So all that fun stuff. Um, So I was always kind of interested in political science and particularly international relations. So uh, when I was growing up in high school, I always read the news, loved that stuff, really followed it pretty closely. I always, always kind of was, was what I was best at, most good at naturally. Uh, and then in college, I chose colleges and applied to some that had good programs in international relations and government. So I ended up going to Wesleyan University. Uh, and really, I got into this particular area of terrorism, insurgency, and kind of subnational conflict my junior year in college when... I was taking a course with a professor named Erica Chenoweth. And so she taught a course my junior year called The Politics of Terrorism. And I thought that was super interesting and just really liked the material. And at the end of that semester, there was an opportunity to apply for some research money from the Department of Homeland Security to do a small grant-funded project. And so we applied together and we got that. And that uh, small grant ended up leading to my honors thesis as an undergraduate and got me really interested in doing more research and liking this idea of really applying rigorous research methods to social scientific questions that have pretty significant implications from understanding counterterrorism practices, understanding how groups operate. And then kind of from there, I decided to do a PhD instead of law school. Uh, and the rest is history. Um, yeah, so... That's fascinating. I have a bunch of questions I want to ask. Can I, I've thought, could I first just kind of explain to you how I come to this podcast? I already kind of outlined sure. some of it before we started the podcast. Yeah. So I teach a class here called Contemporary Issues in Computer Science and Engineering, and we talk about the ethical implications surrounding many different emerging technologies. Like we'll have a week on drones, we'll have a week on 3D re- weapons, um, cyber attacks and stuff like that, hacking. Sounds like my class on technology and security. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, It just got me thinking why, just like realizing just how powerful these weapons are, it got me thinking about how there aren't more terrorist attacks and violent incidents of mass violence in the world. And I think I might be more 
pessimistic minded by nature, but I'm always constantly shocked that more violent events don't happen. And generally speaking, I'm of the opinion that we've been kind of living in video game mode in a lot of ways since 1945 or since maybe 1953 when we set off the hydrogen bomb. And, and we don't really know what the, the technological tools we're playing with. And one of my worries, because I have a lot of libertarian impulses, is that some mass terrorist event will happen, maybe on the scale of 9-11, and we might react to that in a way where um, you know, we, we expand the surveillance state, right? So like 9-11, we signed the Patriot Act, and, and Edward Snowden released all the nefarious things that the governments are doing in terms of... Um, implementing surveillance on us. So I guess, yeah, my, my, my worry, just to sum it up, is there will be some mass terrorist event and our counter-terrorist measures, our counter-terrorism to this will be in the form of a kind of mass surveillance state repression. And someone who really values individual freedom, that really, that, that kind of worries me. And that, so, that, so all this is just a long-winded way to say, this is how I came to you and your work. And um, this train of thought led me to your paper what is it called? Terrorist Technological Innovations. Um, so I thought we could maybe perhaps talk about that first, but if you want to react to anything I just said, you can. Sure. Well, you had a bunch, a bunch of small questions I could discern in yeah. your bigger questions. So you mentioned a couple of things, right? So why haven't we seen more lethal attacks? Why haven't non-state groups like terrorists and insurgents utilized more advanced technology like cyber attacks and drone attacks, for instance? Uh, another mass casualty terrorist attack like 9-11, and then also what would be the implications of that from the state perspective. So that's a huge topic. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Let's start right? a couple of thoughts on a few of those things, right? So the first one, why haven't we seen, uh, not necessarily more lethal attacks, but more attacks through non-conventional, more high-tech platforms? Mm. Uh, I think... While there's a relatively low barrier to entry for lots of high-tech platforms like cyber attacks and drones, right? You can conduct pretty unsophisticated cyber attacks or drone attacks pretty cheaply. You get a drone off Amazon, you download some relatively simple hacking tools that are about DDoS or kind of uh, loic attacks or something that overwhelms a, pla- a server. Pretty simple to do. Non-state groups have done that. I think they don't get a lot of attention because they aren't lethal. And because sophisticated high-tech operations are really difficult, actually. So for a terrorist group uh, to conduct a DDoS attack, sure, that's possible. They've done it. Uh, You have groups like the Syrian Electronic Army. You have uh, Cyber Jihad is another one. You have lots of organizations that have conducted, you know, non-state actor attacks via the Internet and via other high-tech platforms. But they don't get a ton of coverage simply because they're not lethal. So they don't really have a huge impact. Yeah. If a group wanted to conduct something like Stuxnet or taking down Bank of America, even for a couple hours, that would be really difficult and require a lot more advanced capabilities than what most insurgent terrorist groups have nowadays. Okay. So they can do basic stuff, but that complex stuff is still kind of reserved for states. You need too much capability to do that. Yeah. And that gets into another question of media bias, right? So, of course, the media is not going to cover all attacks equally. So ones that don't kill people, like a simple defacing of DOD's Twitter, which happens once in a while, that's not going to get a ton of coverage. Uh, But an attack in Afghanistan that kills six people, that'll get more coverage. Yeah, so can I slip in a question there? Because last week in my class, we were talking about um, 
what the appropriate punishment should be for cyber crimes versus their real life uh, equivalents. Mm -hmm. So should we punish someone the same who engages in crypto locking and gets paid for it as someone who robs a bank? Mm -hmm. Or should we punish someone the same who pirates music as someone who walks into a store and steals a CD? So I guess the kind of, um, the that form of the question for this conversation would be how how should we treat like terrorist groups that are engaging in these cyber attacks or cyber espionage, what's the appropriate counter-terrorist measure? And I, yeah, I don't really trust my moral intuitions here because I, I feel like a lot of it, like you were saying, the media is drawn towards sensationalism and I feel like my moral intuitions are more sensitive to sensationalistic acts. So, you know, we traditionally don't intuitively view white collar crime as bad as some sensationalistic violent crime, even though it might be. Right, and I feel like something similar might be going on with respect to the cyber attacks or cyber espionage. Mm -hmm. That's again a, a really big question, but I just I don't really know how to think about these things. Yeah, well, I think you bring up two important topics there, which are, are different topics. That is, how do you criminalize non-lethal high-tech operations compared to ones that we know a lot more about and seem more familiar that are more lethal attacks, like an armed assault, arson, a suicide bombing, or something like that. Yeah. And the second thing is, how do you prevent those? And that's obviously a fundamental, dif fundamentally different problem as well, and more probably more difficult in some ways. But in terms of the criminalizing side, um, it's tricky because how do you quantify some of these effects, right? So if you uh, take down a Twitter account for a few hours, how do you quantify that? What's the equivalent of a more conventional attack or something like that? And we see this when it comes to states, that most people argue that cyber attacks aren't that dangerous because we haven't yet seen anyone die as a direct result of a cyber attack. Mm. So figuring out how you quantify that is tricky, and that has to do with bigger state-on-state -state conversations about how do states retaliate in cyberspace. So you know, the question or the example would be, if Russia, for instance, you know, as Russia did, influenced and tried to conduct cyber operations during an election in the United States, right. what's appropriate for the US to respond? What's the appropriate type of response? What do they do back to them? That's proportional. And that's difficult when you don't have very quantifiable effects. So mm -hmm. that's true for how states are operating in cyberspace and how non-state actors are operating in cyberspace. And that makes a criminality question very difficult. When it comes to prevention, um, I think a lot of it is pretty similar to how states try to prevent terrorist attacks. Is that it's a lot of good detective and policing work. You figure out who wants to attack you, you look for clues and who might be organizing to do so, and you try to prevent those operations. And you also take lots of defensive measures, right? So we can think of counterterrorism as falling into two kind of fundamental categories, which is uh, defensive and proactive. Defensive would be target hardening, making it more difficult for attacks to succeed or to, to happen. Mm. And proactive would be going out and finding people, preventing that, looking for clues, looking for radicalization. And you want to do both of those, whether it's in the kinetic realm, if you're thinking about a car bomb, or if it's in the high-tech realm, thinking about a DDoS attack or something. Mm. You probably see fewer clues and have to look for different information when you're thinking about high-tech attacks. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to talk about, um, like along these lines, just uh, what you call tactical innovations in your paper. And I guess cyber attacks would be kind of one form of tactical innovation. Mm -hmm. So you, in your paper, um, again, this is terrorist technological innovation for anyone who's interested. So you talk about 
this distinction between strategic innovations, tactical innovations, and organizational innovations, and then you focus the paper on tactical innovations, and then you make a further distinction between major and minor tactical innovations. Could you just kind of uh, divide up that conceptual landscape? Sure. So when we think about innovations by non-state actors, they can concern lots of different elements of how groups behave and how they operate. So most researchers disaggregate innovations according to the first distinction, which is um, where does it fall broadly speaking? Is it a strategic innovation, tactical, or organizational? Strategic have to do with big conceptions about the use of force. And the two well-known examples there are when Al-Qaeda shifted from attacking the near enemy, so kind of targets in the Middle East, to the far enemy, to targeting basically the United States. Mm. And their logic was, well, we're not getting much traction attacking targets here, so we're going to shift to somebody else. And that's going to accomplish our goals in a different way. The IRA did roughly the same thing in Northern Ireland. When they were not having a ton of traction by hitting targets in Belfast, Northern Ireland, they then shifted to targets in England to try to have a different effect. So those are strategic because they're broader conceptions about the use of force and how it's employed. Mm. Tactics are more about how force is employed on the ground. Uh, is it an IED? Is it a suicide bomb? And even within suicide bombing or IEDs, you have innovations in how they're detonated. Uh, if it's an IED in their timers, <clears throat> is it a proximity device or something like that, proximity sensor. And so tactics have to do more with how force is employed on the ground. And that's where we see lots of terrorist innovations. And the third category is organizational. How do you recruit people? How do you indoctrinate people? Um, how do you structure your organization? And once again, Al-Qaeda is a great example. Al-Qaeda used to be super hierarchical and centralized in the Middle East, a very bureaucratic company-like structure. And now they're much more decentralized with affiliates and franchises throughout the globe, particularly the Middle East and Southeast Asia. So we see broad categories of innovation. Then what I focus on in this article are the major and minor innovations within tactics. And that, once again, has to do with how force is kind of employed in discrete instances. And there we see major and minor, and major tactical innovations have to do uh, basically with new ways of employing force, and minor innovations are making the use of force more effective. So we can think of the first airplane hijacking. Uh, it was done, I think, in the <laughs> 1960s by a group in the Middle East. We can think of that as a major tactical innovation because as a fundamentally new means of trying to coerce a state. A minor innovation might be if you have an improvised explosive device and you get like a better uh, timer on it or something, or you upgrade from a timer that'll go off at this particular time of day to a timer, to a detonation device that can be dialed in from a cell phone. That would be a minor innovation. That kind of upgrading an existing upgrades. thing. Right. And so one fundamentally changes how you conduct counterterrorism, how states prepare the major innovations. And the minor ones just kind of make their jobs harder. Yeah. You don't have to fundamentally change things. Yeah. So I thought we could hone in on a couple of what I think are major technical innovations. And I was just curious to get uh, your insight on these. So the first is the 1995 Tokyo subway sarin attack. Yep. Could you just explain what that was and how that maybe change the game from a counter-terrorist standpoint? Yes, this is one of the first chemical attacks uh, on a mass transit uh, platform by a non-state actor. 
It was done by this apocalyptic cultish group in Japan that had bases in Australia called Om Shinrikyo. And it was religious, and it really was a cult of personality around this, around this one particular leader who had a lot of sway in the organization. And yeah, they had a couple guys go on to uh, subways in Tokyo's with these bags of sarin gas, and they tried to basically puncture it with their umbrellas and then get off. It didn't go off super well um, because of limitations for how the gas spreads and for what happened basically on the, the uh, train itself. And I think only a few people were injured. I'm not even sure if anyone died from the attack, but I can't exactly remember. I think they did when I was Wikipediaing it last night. <laughs> right. So I, I remember the, the difference was that people thought such an attack could have been much more dangerous and deadly than it actually turned out to be. But because of technical problems with the attack itself, it was much more subdued. So I think you're right. So a number of people did die, but it wasn't as bad as people were expecting for a sort of chemical attack on a mass transit system. Have we seen any other chemical attacks of that nature since then? That's a good question. It draws on my, my history, my knowledge <laughs> of the history of terrorist attacks recently. Um, chemical attacks. No, they're usually reserved for states because what you need to accomplish a chemical attack is kind of some industrial capacity, right? Or you need somehow some capability to get these chemicals to manufacture them depending on what they are, because sometimes you can't buy these in the open market. Uh, and you have some way of disseminating the chemical itself. As we saw in Tokyo, just releasing it is not super viable, but you might want to get it, you know, I'm not going to go into the details, but you might want to <laughs> You're not be able to have a better way of disseminating these sort of chemicals into against the public, basically. And I think that's why we've seen more chemical attacks by states, because it does require a bit more infrastructure and capability. Mm. And so we've seen a bunch in Syria, where chlorine gas and sarin um, by Syrian government, by the Iraqi government previously, um, <clears throat> and VX nerve agents and things like that were used against civilian populations. But it's a bit too complex for most non-state actors. So the next one that I have is the Hezbollah suicide bombings and how yep. that really changed things. Yeah, so the Hezbollah's attacks in the 19, early 1970s uh, during the Lebanese Civil War were against American and French military bases. And Hezbollah wanted to get the US and the French out of the Lebanese Civil War. And so they basically were presented with a problem. How do you hit the American and French targets and not be shot basically from 100 yards away? So what they did was they disguised um, some trucks as basically, you know, not civilian trucks, but industrial trucks that were going to go to the base. They drove up to both the French and American barracks, loaded these trucks with explosives, drove in, and detonated them. And so there's a lot of debate about what is the first suicide bombing attack. And it's tricky because there are suicide attacks going back throughout history, right? Somebody can try to conduct or kill somebody or an assassination and say, I know I'm going to die if I try to assassinate this national leader, for instance. Does that make that a suicide attack? Maybe. But the first one that we kind of think about was, at least from a watershed moment in the history of non-state actors, was Hezbollah doing this. And there you see the suicide was intentional. It was known by the person who was driving the truck. It was critical to how the operation went off and to the detonation of, of the device and to its efficacy. That you had someone who could drive onto the base, wait until the right moment, and then detonate. And that really changed the game for how attacks occurred. It changed how you defend a base. It changed how you conduct a patrol missions if you're in Iraq and Afghanistan, even in the last 10 years. Uh, it changed how people interact with civilian populations in conflict zones. And you know, some people describe this as the ultimate smart bomb. 
that if you're wearing like a suicide vest, you don't have to detonate that unless you know your target is nearby or unless you got to where you want to go. And in another scenario, you can maybe not explode it, go back and try again another day. Yeah, that's just imagining the kind of um, state of mind that you have to be in to implement something like that. Are the And we don't have to go traverse too far down this road, but are the overwhelming majority of people who engage in this doing it out of religious motivations? Is that fair to say? Because I, I, I don't see, it seems like the promise of the afterlife mm-hmm. has to be a huge motivating force for, for a, a lot of these things. Uh, definitely. I think that's a, a, a core element of it, although we have seen suicide attacks by relatively atheist organizations. Uh, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka are relatively not super religious, uh, but they are a nationalist uh, separatist group that wants an independent Tamil state. They've pioneered the use of suicide bombings, um, and they definitely do not have the same religious affiliation or religious dedication as some groups in the Middle East do, particularly Hezbollah. So religion helps, I think. I don't think it's critical. But as you bring up, it requires a fundamentally different type of recruit and method of training people for suicide attacks. And so that's why suicide attacks are kind of both at the strategic, tactical, and organizational level of innovations because it requires changes in everything you do as, an, or as a terrorist group, for instance. You have to recruit different types of people. You have to indoctrinate them, prepare them to, to die in pursuit of their mission and pursue the group's goals. And then for strategically, it changes fundamentally how you use force and how counter-terrorist forces can prepare. So that was one of the most significant innovations in the history of terrorist attacks because it incorporates so many group level and conflict level changes. Do you worry that, um, and this kind of circles back to one component of my original question, but that some counterterrorist measures that we take end up being illegitimate forms of state repression in the form of maybe surveillance? And I'm, I'm thinking particularly about 9-11 here. Mm-hmm. I know it's like a really um, big question, kind of. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, if we would just look at the hist- recent history of the United States and what's happened here in terms of surveillance, uh, it's been kind of unprecedented, right? So post 9-11, you had the Patriot Act. You had uh, the FISA courts were established. You had lots of wiretaps on suspected terrorists, and those were given up pretty freely in the post 9-11 uh, environment. And then more recently, with leaks, it came to light that the U.S. had this prison program at the NSA that was monitoring and listening to and documenting kind of all calls and texts and everything that was happening within the United States and even abroad to a certain extent. So obviously, you've seen lots of government oversteps in terms of surveillance. Uh, do I worry about it? From a civil liberties perspective, sure. Um, I think it goes against a lot of the founding ideals of the United States for what some of these programs tried to do, but it gets at this core dilemma about how you prevent these sorts of attacks. And prevention is super difficult, right? Think of the, just think of the US alone. Over 300 million people, uh, even if a tenth of a tenth of 1% want to commit some sort of attack or do something bad against the United States or kill people. That's a lot of people you got to think about, you got to stop, you got to defend against. What's that old saying? The terrorists just have to be right once, we have to be right all the time? Exactly, right? And so um, 
think about airport security. Airport security has to defend against so many different attacks and a terrorist group just has to find one weakness for an attack to succeed. So the counter-terrorist job is much more difficult than the terrorist job in a lot of respects. Uh, but does that justify massive surveillance programs and you know, infringing upon civil liberties and political rights? Probably not, but it's a difficult balance. And so I think the US government is criticized very easily, but it's also a tough situation to be in. And there aren't many good solutions to what you do to balance security with political and civil liberties. Are there particular technologies that you're uh, specifically worried about in terms of terrorists using them as innovations in the future? Um, I think the obvious future of terrorist attacks, some, some will go online, right? I mean, they'll use cyber tools to their advantage. We've already seen this to a certain extent. Um, there were some attacks by groups like Anonymous and LulzSec to coerce different state institutions, one of which was like the California Board of Transportation. I remember the exact name. But they wanted Caltrain, I think it was, to change some sort of policies, to do something to stop collecting user data. And so they basically got a bunch of their data and released it and kind of doxed the organization, people who are, who are using it. And that's coercion. It's nonviolent, but it's definitely a coercive attempt to influence the state government. Mm. So that's similar to the logic of terrorism, although you're excluding that violent component to it. It's still coercion and trying to influence the government policies. Mm. So I think that's definitely a future. Uh, but if that future remains nonviolent, we definitely don't know that, right? So yes, as of today, no one has directly died as a result of a cyber attack, but that could easily change in the future. And I think terrorists would probably look into ways for, to do that. Yeah, so I think that dovetails with the last question I have here on terrorism that I want to move towards a couple of your other papers. Um, but that's how, like, is there, a st is there a set standard as to when some group qualifies as a terrorist group? And when I was formulating this question, I was thinking about it in particular in relation to domestic terrorism. That mm -hmm. seems like it's a more potentially intractable issue than when compared to international terrorism for a variety of reasons. Like one group that I was thinking about here was Antifa and mm -hmm. how there are some people I see online that are saying Antifa is domestic form of domestic terrorism. Other people are saying that they're not. I don't have an opinion one way or the other. I probably don't know enough about the organization. I do. They're definitely not a terrorist group. They're not a terrorist group. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, but maybe, I don't know, political interests are wrapped in all of this. Mm -hmm. And then I know that there have probably been some, if I, uh, if I had to guess, I don't really know, but there have probably been some groups I would imagine that in the past have been called domestic terrorist groups that actually are not domestic ter terrorist groups. I guess you, you would say Antifa would be one. Um, maybe the Black Panthers? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so. The ANC, the African National Congress, the party of Nelson Mandela fighting for uh, anti against the apartheid government, was considered a terrorist group by the U.S. State Department until the U.S. State Department and U.S. government kind of came around and said, you know what, uh, that apartheid government actually isn't a great thing to have around. Uh, and so then once they kind of came to that realization, the ANC no longer became a terrorist group in their eyes. So you're right. Terrorist is a super tricky label, and it's often a political label. So because of that, I think when people use the term terror, well, there's the distinction, right? When the p members of the public or, or a government official often use the term terrorism, there's a political connotation to it. When scholars and researchers of terrorism talk about it, it often refers to a mode of conflict or an organization that fundamentally and predominantly relies on that mode of conflict to achieve their goals. So 
the U.S. government saying Iran is a terrorist state, that Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general, is a terrorist. No, they weren't terrorists because they're a state, and so that, that that kind of excludes them from being a terrorist actor in the way we often think about it. He's a state official. Exactly. So, in, in uh, you know, Noam Chomsky and others have made the argument that states can be terrorists and conduct terrorist attacks. I disagree. Uh, I think terrorism is fundamentally a strategy by non-state actors to achieve social, political, or economic goals through the use of force that primarily targets civilians and non-combatants. And so in that respect, we have a clear distinction between what is and what is not a terrorist group or a terrorist attack, but it's very much a political label in the vast majority of contexts. So can you educate me as to why, and again, we don't have to spend a lot of time mm -hmm. on this, but why Antifa is not a terrorist group? I don't know that much about Antifa, but I just, you know, when I'm on Twitter, I just, it's everywhere. And I just feel yeah. bewildered by this. Yeah, so I'm not an expert on Antifa either, uh, but from what I've seen, Antifa rallies have experienced sporadic violence. I don't think, based on my understanding, that Antifa is trying to achieve political change through a calculated use of violence that is aimed against civilians and non-combatants. So yes, while there might be some jerks at an Antifa rally who uh, cause a protest to escalate or fight somebody or do X, Y, or Z that's violent, that doesn't make them a terrorist organization. Uh, you can have lots of events where violence happens, but it doesn't mean the intention was to be violent. And that's where I draw a distinction between Antifa being a terrorist group and why it isn't. That makes sense to me. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, so the next paper that I read is the State Repression and Nonviolent Resistance. So I thought we could just talk a little bit about violent resistance versus nonviolent resistance. Yep. Um, I guess maybe first, could you just talk about what is, what is meant by scholars when they use the term state repression? What are some mm -hmm. different kinds of state repression? And generally speaking, what's the distinction between uh, violent resistance and non-violent mm -hmm. resistance? Yeah, so state repression is a, a huge term. It can encapsulate lots of different state actions, some very visible ones like a mass killing, genocide, politicide, targeted killings, extrajudicial killings, etc., all the way down to, uh, depending on your definition and who you're talking to, economic discrimination. Uh, political discrimination against particular groups. Um, the U.S. discriminating against migrants for certain reasons, right? Those are forms of repression in certain contexts because you're repressing what a person is capable of, you're repressing particular components of their life and their equal access to political liberties and civil liberties and things like that. The ones that most researchers f focus on, I think, are the more visible ostentatious and clear forms of state repression, the real bad stuff, killing people, arrests, torture, that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, but once again, that's a huge category. And just like terrorism, it, it, how you measure it depends a lot on how you define it. So really thinking through, if you're a researcher, what is state repression? How am I going to measure this is critical to whatever it is you're studying and what your findings are ultimately going to be. On the other hand, uh, it's kind of the same thing with violent and nonviolent resistance. Mm. And this has been a huge area of research in the last five, 10 years, really, because we've seen a huge growth in the number of nonviolent resistance campaigns around the world, whether it's the climate march in the US to what's happening right now in, in uh, Hong Kong. Mm. Um, people are, are recognizing that maybe there's some benefits to using nonviolence as to achieve their political goals, as opposed to going immediately to violent tactics to try to influence and coerce the government. 
Did this? Did all this start with with uh, Gandhi? Was he the first one to really popularize this notion of nonviolent resistance as potentially a, a more successful means of resistance mm-hmm. than violence? Yeah, Gandhi is often looked to as one of the kind of founding fathers of this school of thought that civil disobedience can be effective at coercing national governments. And it's really interesting that since Gandhi, and he wasn't necessarily the first, but was one of the people who really thought about the strategic logic of it in a systematic way, you've seen that develop even more. And in my mind, one of the most fascinating things is that both violence and nonviolence, when they're done by non-state weaker groups, really try to work in the same logic. They both try to make governing difficult. They try to undermine what the state is capable of doing, whether it's extracting resources or exerting control. And they usually, neither one tries to succeed by directly defeating the state. Mm. Or yeah, a terrorist or insurgent, like the Taliban even. Taliban's very strong right now, but they can't defeat the US directly. If the US wants to be in Afghanistan, it's gonna be there. The same thing is true of civil resistance campaigns. They can't directly take over a government, but they can make it really uncomfortable for a state to be there, to be in power, and maybe they'll give it up on their own eventually in the future. Or maybe they'll be kind of coerced to, but it'll be their decision to a certain extent. So is there, does the research suggest that nonviolence, nonviolent resistance has been more successful <clears throat> since it's started to become more popularized than violent resistance? I mean, the example that I always, that comes to mind first is MLK and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the process of just strate- engaging in strategic nonviolence so you can kind of capture yeah. the moral high ground and then mm-hmm. you have people in their living rooms seeing all this unfold on TV. And, you know, even if they might harbor some racist inclinations, they just viscerally see the injustice in front of their eyes. Yeah. And that seems to be more effective than just engaging in might. Yeah, so I don't know about recent trends in the efficacy of violence and nonviolence, but throughout their history, since throughout the the 20th century, I'd say, nonviolent movements have been about twice as effective as violent movements. Uh, Across the board, in terms of what they're trying to achieve, when you hold all these factors constant, using nonviolence is much more effective than using violence to achieve these big political goals. And I think the reasons you discussed when it comes to the US civil rights movement are exactly correct that what made that effective and why not, why was nonviolence effective there? Well, first it gave them the moral high ground. It made repressing them difficult. The US didn't want to be seen as shooting unarmed protesters, even though violence did happen, but doing that on a systematic scale was difficult. Whereas again, some groups like even the Black Panthers or others that used more systematic violence, it was easier to target them, to arrest them, and to use force and retaliation. Right. Um, and you can really change people's minds when you're not using force. You can talk about ideas, you can, you can still get the same attention and coverage if you shut down a major avenue in a big city or something like that. So you can achieve lots of kind of process goals that help you achieve your ultimate ends by using nonviolence. Mm. Yeah, so in your paper, you make a distinction between strategic nonviolence, which is what I think we've been talking about, and principled yep. nonviolence. Um, could you just kind of articulate that distinction? I thought that was a helpful distinction for me. Yeah, so I think when you ask lots of people what nonviolence means, uh, they conflate it with pacifism, right? This idea that, well, I'm never going to engage in violence no matter what. And that's fundamentally different from saying you're engaging in strategic nonviolence or civil disobedience or civil resistance. The latter is much more of a concerted effort to achieve a political goal 
by disrupting operations, by you know, sit-ins, protests, strikes, boycotts, etc. Pacifism and principle of nonviolence is simply you saying you don't agree with violence and will never use it whatsoever. And there's not that broader political logic or political endgame in mind, whereas for civil disobedience, it's very much as a strategy to achieve political change. So yeah, so my sense is that um, principled nonviolence doesn't really hold up ethically. If you take it to its ethical extremes, yeah. you're just allowing the strongest people in the world to run roughshed over the weakest people. And so I, I don't, that, that, pacifism has just never really made sense to me as like an ethical paradigm that we should be, I mean, obviously you don't want to use violence if you don't have to, but to say that you're unequivocally not going to use violence yeah. just doesn't seem to make sense to me. It's definitely difficult, right? And this is when it's a tricky area where I, th I think a lot of people recently have run into some disagreement because what do you do if you're in the U.S. and you're a scholar of this sort of stuff and you're telling people in Syria to not to remain, remain nonviolent, right? They're being shot by the Syrian government. They're having barrel bombs dropped on them by Russian Syrian air forces. They're having chemical attacks against their population. So are we right? And is it, are we being responsible to say they should remain nonviolent? And I, you're right. That's not necessarily a choice we can make for everybody. But I think the distinction, and one thing that I would disagree with you, your initial comment a bit, is that nonviolence can be used to contest those in power. It doesn't mean you're not going to do anything. It just means yeah. you're going to engage in a different form of, of contesting them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think I'd, I would agree with that. So, um, But yeah, so I guess another question here, just getting to the ambiguity of these terms and how we're using them. Mm -hmm. What, like, at what point do you say something is violence and at what point do you say something is nonviolence? I think in the paper you write how, um, you know, some argue that destroying property is violent, whereas mm -hmm. others view it as nonviolent because no individuals are harmed. And, yeah. you know, I see this all the time. Some people will say that certain forms of speech can be violent. So it seems like a lot of people are using this term and what, what I would argue is kind of a reckless way. Yeah. Um, but I understand that it's, inherently ambiguous as well. So I guess where do you kind of draw the line as a scholar in terms of what you count as violent versus nonviolent resistance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a great question that gets at, you know, um, ontology, conceptualization, measurement, coding, all these questions about the philosophy of science and knowledge and also that relate very significantly to research design in political science and elsewhere. And it's tricky. There's no clear answer for what is violence and what is nonviolence. There's a huge gray area in between there. Uh, some groups, even nonviolent ones, can have a devoted radical flank that engages in violent operations. Which I want to talk about in your most recent paper. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get there. Um, but for those cases, you have many others where a nonviolent group doesn't have a fully developed radical flank, but people still engage in violence. Or maybe a nonviolent movement that is organizing a protest is shot upon by national police forces, and then they use violence back. Does that make them violent, or are they still relatively nonviolent? So for me, I tend to think most about the organization's you know, principal strategy. Are they trying to achieve political change through predominantly nonviolent or violent methods? And yes, Things can happen at the border. You know, violent groups can have some nonviolent activity. Nonviolent groups can have some violence break out here and there. But I try to look for what they're predominantly doing and what's informing their major strategic decisions and use that to figure out which strategy is which.
Mm. So it's, but it's often not clear. And there are a lot of cases in that gray zone. And so when you're coding this sort of stuff, if you're collecting a data set on violent and nonviolent movements, like uh, the data set we use for a lot of these analyses is the uh, nonviolent and violent conflict outcomes data set. It's collected by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan and others. In that data set, they have a distinction between violent campaigns, nonviolent campaigns, and those are the radical flank. And that's how they capture this gray area by thinking about radical flanks. And they don't necessarily ignore sporadic violence, but they kind of account for that by thinking most about the principal strategy of resistance mm. and allowing some fluctuation to occur. It kind of ties in with how you're defining terrorism. Like, what mm. is this goal actually, what is this group actually trying to do? Yeah. Are they mainly focused on using violence, or did some violence just happen to break out at some rally which was intended to be wholly peaceful? Right, and I think, I guess for me, I place a lot less weight on all these terms about conceptualization and definitions, right? I don't necessarily care how you colloquially define terrorism or how a researcher defines terrorism, but I care that the researcher, when they define terrorism a certain way and then collect data a certain way, that they recognize that their conclusions are in reference to a very particular definition of terrorism. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if I define terrorism as the pursuit of a non-state actor using violence against civilian populations to affect political change. Okay, but what about groups that have religious or social or economic motivations too? So if you exclude those groups and your study of terrorism is very limited to very particular types of organizations. And right. that's fine, but you have to recognize that when you're thinking about your conclusions and the implications of your work. Right. And so for us, when we study violence and nonviolence, Yes, I recognize that there's a gray area and there are limitations to that, but you have to make some compromise when doing quantitative research. A few compromises here and there, particularly when it comes to measurement and conceptualization are just fundamentally necessary. So when I think about my conclusions, I take into account how I measured my variables, how I define violence and nonviolence, and I think about where and when my conclusions might not apply if something really falls in the gray zone of how I code stuff. Right, so it's just a matter of being terminologically consistent and realizing how you're defining things and the implications of that. I, I guess just one worry that I have in terms of how we might define violence or nonviolence mm -hmm. is um, certain laws not changing, but us as a society reinterpreting those laws because we've redefined certain words in those laws. Yeah. Like there's some law that says you're not allowed to engage in violent actions and now we've loosened the definition so far that we're now legally punishing people. The law hasn't changed, but we're just interpreting it in a new way, mm -hmm. in a broader way. Um, so I guess that concerns me, just the language kind of subtly changing in a way that might not be, I don't know, beneficial to society or something like that. Yeah, this is why you hope government interpretation of laws and government regulations move with the times, uh, but yeah. that's once again a challenge, right? And you still see this debate reflected in interpretations of the Constitution. Are you an original, originalist or not, a textualist or not? And if you are an originalist, then the word of the Constitution is what informs your beliefs today. You know, the definition of a well-regulated well militia is one that we often, that comes up about the Second Amendment. What is that? What does that mean? Do we have militias in America today? What did the framers think was a well-regulated militia? And does it apply to some random dude having an AK-47 in his house in Connecticut? It's hard to know what the framers meant. Um, 
And it's a challenge for governments to maintain relevant and to recognize when those terms are changing. But there's no real answer to it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a hard problem. I hadn't thought about it. Um, but yeah, the, that constitution point is certainly true. All right, so I thought we could move towards your most recent paper, which I had a chance to check out last night. Um, so the title of this paper is Internal Politics and the Fragmentation of Armed Groups. Um, could you just, I guess first, could you just summarize like the, what you're up to in that paper before I get into more specifics? Sure. So this is actually kind of the, the crux of most of my, my research. So okay. my primary interest, I would say, that kind of motivated me to go to graduate school, and, and this really comes from my dissertation, this particular article does, uh, is thinking about the inner workings of armed organizations. How do they organize? How do they structure themselves? How do they recruit? How do they finance? All this sort of stuff. And in this paper, uh, like I said, based on my dissertation and the book manuscript that uh, is pretty much finalized now and should be going up for review very shortly, the paper tries to understand the breakdown of armed organizations and the emergence of splinter groups. And this happens very frequently. So I find, and many other researchers find, that roughly a third of all, say, terrorist and insurgent groups today formed by breaking away from a pre-existing terrorist group. Mm. That forming from the ground up is really challenging, but you see so many disputes in armed groups, it's very common for them to break apart and for one to split off and go on their own. And a great example of this is the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that one. So the Islamic State started off as um, a group... A Sunni organization that was primarily local in Iraq. It started growing and expanding. They pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda and became Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And they did that for pretty obvious reasons, right? You get respect, notoriety, more weapons, funds, help planning operations, and so on. So becoming AQI was very helpful for them, especially when they were facing off against the U.S. in the post-surge uh, mid-2000s in Iraq. And then because of some strategic disputes, you see the leaders of Al-Qaeda in Iraq taking a much more hardline approach than what the Al-Qaeda leaders, say, in Saudi Arabia wanted. So because of this growing rift, AQI split off and became the Islamic State, and you had Al-Qaeda disavow their relationship with them. So these splits are super common. And in this article, I try to understand <clears throat> why these splits produce groups that behave so differently. So in other words, why did one split produce the Islamic State, where another split produced a group you'd never heard of that died off very quickly. Mm. And the reason this is important is because if you go and look at U.S. counterinsurgency and counterterrorist man manuals, for how to defeat these organizations, how they train soldiers today, it's pretty common for these manuals to say, well, one of the things we want to do is try to split and divide terrorist groups. But you got to know if you're a counterterrorist force, how am I going to cultivate a split that leads to weakness? and doesn't lead to another group like the Islamic State. That's more extreme. Maybe. Exactly. Right. So how do you group. prevent those sorts of bad splits, but foment the ones that are good from a state perspective? And that's what I try to do in this paper. And is that what was going on with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State? The you, you say that Islamic State were more hardliners. Is it that they, they were more intent on using violence to accomplish their ends, whereas the leaders of Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia or wherever it was were more open to compromise and less violent means? Is that? Uh, I wouldn't call him open to compromise and less violent means, but it, <laughs> but it was a different sense of their violent strategy. Okay. That Al-Qaeda wanted to build more local support, almost have a grassroots movement, um, and to not alienate people and to not rule by force. The Islamic State 
didn't really have fundamental ideological differences with Al-Qaeda, but it came down to that strategic vision. And they used much more force. They ruled with a hard line, uh, you know, and used punishment against civilians and really enforced their local obedience. And they didn't build as much of a movement, a local movement in the way that Al-Qaeda wanted to. And a huge issue for them was beheadings. I, the Islamic State conducted many beheadings, did these things publicly to intimidate local populations. And Al-Qaeda really was against that. And Al-Qaeda also didn't like the extent to which um, the Islamic State was targeting Shia Muslims. Now, the Islamic State is primarily Sunni Islamic organization, Islamist organization. They really want to promote and fundamentally create Islamic governments around the world and to expand their caliphate. That's what we call it, Islamist and not Islamic. And Al-Qaeda had a much more discriminative view of who you, who you should attack, that you shouldn't necessarily attack all Shia Muslims because even they can be converted and they're still in the broader sense of Islam. Whereas the Islamic State said, no, if you're not Sunni, if you don't believe in our particular vision, then you're an enemy. Where does... um. So there's a lot of talk in the media about how we've defeated ISIS. Yep. To what extent is that true? Uh, it's definitely not true. <laughs> that's, that's a major thing. Uh, the Islamic State no longer controls a large area of territory, but Al-Qaeda hasn't done that since about 2002, and they've still been a threat ever since as well. And most terrorist groups that we can think of don't necessarily control territory, and they're still threatening to the United States. So, yes, the Islamic State has been pushed back. Yes, they don't control territory and aren't making as much money because of that. But they have transformed and probably will continue to transform just as Al-Qaeda has done from a very centralized hierarchical group to one that has cells or affiliates throughout the world that conduct different types of attacks. Right. So while they might not be capable of having these huge operations, they can still conduct attacks that they have in Western Europe probably pretty easily. How do you think, how devastating of a blow do you think it was taking out the leader of ISIS recently? I forget what his name was. But Al-Baghdadi. Yes, yeah. what is it? Uh, Al-Baghdadi. Al-Baghdadi, right. Um, I hear some people saying that, well, maybe this will animate them more and inspire more people to join the movement. And other people are saying, are you crazy? He was yeah. the main inspirational figure at the center of this. Of course, this is going to be a devastating blow to them. Yeah, so you bring up two good points there, right? So on the one hand, he was an inspirational, somewhat ideological, central figure for the group. Yeah. So killing him might have been a blow to their reputation as this like untouchable, invincible group. On the other hand, the Islamic State was so bureaucratized that they had a number of people who could very easily take over. And that seems to be what's happened. We don't see infighting, we don't see collapse. We see just power transferring to someone else who is probably pretty ready for this to happen and anticipated it because you know you're being targeted by the United States and Western coalition allies. So groups prepare for this stuff and the Islamic State definitely did that. So just in the same way that killing Osama bin Laden didn't put an end to Al-Qaeda, uh, this is probably a temporary blow to the Islamic State, but definitely they're not uh, out for the count. Um, have there been recent peace talks with Al-Qaeda in the past week or so? Am I right? In uh, the Taliban, not The Al-Qaeda. Taliban. Okay, my bad. Um, what's the state of that? Did you just inform me about that? I just saw that in the news recently, and yeah. I just thought it was relevant to bring up. Maybe. 
Yeah, I don't follow it um, all that closely, but you know, the main thing to consider, remember here, is that the Taliban was a former ruling government of Afghanistan. So the Taliban took over. Um, they, with the help of the Mujahideen, the Soviets were forced out of Afghanistan. There was a civil war briefly, and the Taliban became the ruling Islamist government of Afghanistan. So they were a Islamic government based on Islamic beliefs, and that's how they ruled the country. They're pretty hardline, repressed women, repressed minorities. Certainly were not uh, reputable state actors. They gave assistance to Al-Qaeda in the late 1990s, gave them territory, safe haven. That allowed 9-11 to happen. That without those training camps and safe havens, such a complex operation like 9-11 would not have been possible mm. if you didn't have that, that base to kind of do all your plans from. So the U.S. went in 2001, overthrew them. The Taliban went on the run, retreated into the tribal regions of Pakistan, the mountains, has been conducting insurgency ever since. Now, we're 20 years into the war in Afghanistan, and Trump campaigned on getting out of Middle East wars. Yeah. So Trump has had some, uh, you know, kind of indirect negotiations with the Taliban through third-party mediators to try to figure out how we can kind of end this stuff. And there was seemingly a deal a few months ago that you might remember fell apart because the Taliban, during the ceasefire, conducted a major suicide attack in Kabul and killed something like 60 people, I think. And so that derailed that entire negotiation, that potential peace plan. Now the U.S. went back to the table with the Taliban, have, have tried to hammer out a new deal, and there are indications that they're pretty close to an agreement. Now, the agreement wouldn't be the U.S. fully withdrawing. It would be the U.S. withdrawing many of its troops, most of its troops, not all of them. The Taliban may be having some sort of power sharing agreement um, or having representation in the national government, but it remains to be seen what the particulars of that deal are. Nobody wants to release the deal before it's really hammered out and finalized and agreed upon. Can I ask what your perspective is on the foreign policy question as to whether we should get out of Afghanistan and the other places we're occupied as to whether we should leave some minimal amount of troops there to oversee things. I really don't know what to think about it personally. Yeah, it's tricky. There's no clear answer. Um, but I'm of the mindset kind of that you break it, you buy it. Uh, the U.S. went in here and overthrew these two governments. And sure, they weren't good governments, but the U.S. bears some responsibility for helping rebuild these countries. Um, in terms of withdrawing all their troops, I don't think that's a good idea either. The U.S. needs to maintain some presence in the Middle East, right? They have to do it for grander geopolitical reasons, and they have to do it for local reasons too. That if the U.S. totally withdraws from Afghanistan, who has the most power there? The Taliban. The national government is pretty corrupt. Their national police and military forces aren't that well-trained and aren't that cohesive. So the Taliban could take over again. And then what happens if in 10 years you have the Taliban take over and then does the Taliban allow other terrorist groups to operate there? Does the Taliban try to attack the United States? Um, <clears throat> the same thing is true of Syria, which is why I think the U.S. needs to maintain some presence and involvement in Syria because you don't want that to spiral out of control. And fully withdrawing and having an isolationist foreign policy allows those possibilities uh, to become reality. Am I correct in thinking that us at least withdrawing, and I'm really exposing my lack of foreign policy knowledge here, but us at least partially withdrawing some of our troops helped lead to the formation of the Islamic State? Um, kind of like a power vacuum there? 
Definitely. So <clears throat> it's a tricky question, but absolutely one of the things that contributed to the Islamic State was the fact that there was no capability to prevent their rise when people kind of saw them forming. And that Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and then form, after they split off in 2014 to become independent and become the Islamic State, the Iraqi government just wasn't capable of defeating them in the area where they were holed up in the northwest of the country. And then right across the border was Syrian territory, and Bashar al-Assad was fighting a civil war. So he wasn't really focused on what was happening in the far eastern reaches of his country either. So because you had no U.S. troops, because you had a weak and um, sect, you know, uh, not sectarian, I guess, but you had a ethnically aligned Iraqi national government that pissed off a lot of Sunnis, mm. because you had free space in Syria as well, you had the perfect storm of factors that allowed a rebel group like the Islamic State to form and to really thrive in this area. Mm. So definitely the U.S.'s withdrawal of troops is one factor. But remember, most Americans wanted that too, which is a really tricky thing in foreign policy. That like Trump right now can campaign on pulling out of wars in the Middle East and bringing American troops home. But when push comes to shove, there are pretty important reasons for keeping those troops there that are really hard to communicate to the public. Yeah. And so it's kind of a lose-lose politically for what you do in that situation. That's why I always get suspicious of people who have really passionate beliefs on these things who don't have any relationship or direct experience on the ground in these places. Like, how can you really know if you're not acquainted with the on-the-ground facts about what's going on? Yeah, and each one is so complex. And, um, you know, when we think about trying to anticipate what would happen if X occurs, right, so if the U.S. withdraws troops, these things are so impacted by a multitude of conflicting and interrelated political dynamics that making one small change or like pulling one lever, we don't really know what that could lead to, which is why it's so tricky to anticipate foreign policy. That even in, with regards to the Islamic State, yes, the withdrawing of troops from Iraq was a good thing domestically, politically for the United States. It's what most Americans wanted. It made sense in some logics too. But then you combine that with what was happening in Iraq with the national government, what was happening in Syria, the fact that the Sunnis in this area were pissed off for lots of different pretty good reasons, meant that it was kind of the catalyst for a group like this to form. And you can't always anticipate those things. Right, it just led to this butterfly effect that yeah. we didn't anticipate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, back to the paper. So... <laughs> So in the paper, you establish these three hypotheses. You say groups with large organizational niches will experience greater rates of disagreement, mm -hmm. defection. Uh, the second, groups with large organizational niches are more likely to adopt hierarchical organizational structures. And then lastly, large organizational niches are less likely to survive. Mm -hmm. um, could you just, right, so then so you outline these three hypotheses and then you seek to validate these hypotheses by considering um, the fragmentation of some groups in Ireland. Yep. So could you just say more about those hypotheses? Say what those mean. <laughs> yeah. What, what's an organizational niche? Yeah. So that's kind of a concept I developed when it comes to splinters forming, right? So to understand more broadly why group dynamics and terrorist organizations matter, the example I give to my students right now, my class on rebel group dynamics is, is this. So everyone has done a group project in class that has gone terribly wrong. 
and they hate it. They hate everyone they're involved with. You get a bad grade. The end product isn't good, et cetera, right? What are some reasons that that could happen? One is you don't have good leadership. One is, it, you know, kind of no one takes control. Another is everyone has different dis ideas for what the product should look like, how you should proceed, how you should divide up responsibility, et cetera. Um, another is you don't have the right training or capacity to achieve what you want to do for your end product. The same thing is true in terrorist groups. And I argue here about this organizational niche that basically when a splinter, a breakaway faction forms from an existing organization, if those people are all really aligned in how they view their future, what they want to accomplish, how they want to use force, what their ideology is, they're going to be much more cohesive and more effective because they all get along, they all think the same way, they all share the same vision for the future. When, you, when a splinter develops and say it pulls from strategic hardliners, from ideological hardliners, and maybe personalist followers of like al-Baghdadi or something in the Islamic State, mm. you're getting people who are there for very different reasons and have different goals in mind for their future, for the future of the organization. So when the, the niche is bigger, when you draw from different components of the parent group, you're creating a less cohesive terrorist or insurgent group, which bodes poorly for their future. That means you're gonna need more hierarchy to keep them in control. It means you're gonna have more infighting. Uh, what was the third hypothesis? I don't remember what it was. Uh, less likely to survive. Yes, and ultimately because you're hierarchical, because you have infighting and defection and leaking, you're gonna fail at a higher rate than those very cohesive splinters that form. Mm -hmm. And so to test these hypotheses, I look at two splits in the Irish Republican Army. One split that occurred in the official Irish Republican Army, the OIRA, uh, when the INLA, the Irish National Liberation Army, formed from it, from its ranks. And I looked at a second split, when the real IRA formed by breaking off the provisional IRA, much about 20 years later. So this is the beginning of the 20th century around that we're talking about? Uh, no, late 20th century. So one happened in like oh. 1973 and one happened in 1998. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so those two splits they look similar in lots of dimensions in terms of who their parent group was, what some of the disagreements were, what the British government was doing. Lots of kind of key things are the same. They both had very charismatic leaders leading this exit from their parent groups. But the big difference was that the real IRA really just disagreed with the provisionals over the use of force. Should we compromise with the British or should we not? Should we continue violence or not? When the INLA formed from the official IRA, they had disagreements over strategy, over ideology, over leadership, a bunch of different disputes. So because of that, the split when you had a bunch of disagreements produced this new group that had people thinking with totally different ideas for what they should do in the future. Whereas for the real IRA, when they broke away, they were comprised just of people who disagreed over the use of force and wanted to resume violence. And so therefore, they were much more cohesive. Everyone thought the same way, and it made for a much more effective and long-lasting armed organization. Mm -hmm. So it's basically that getting along and having people who think the same way in an armed group is very good for their functioning. Mm. So what um, what policy implications or takeaways do you draw from this article? You mentioned earlier in the conversation how conventional wisdom on pamphlets will say, you should try to divide the terrorist organizations yeah. at all costs. But obviously this argument seems to cut against that. You don't want to divide the organization and then have some hardliner breakaway group just elevate things to unforeseen levels. Exactly. So the implication is that, yes, splitting groups can be a good thing. 
Um, but you want to avoid splits that would galvanize groups or polarize them along a single dimension. So you don't want to just split off hardliners, for instance, from the Taliban. If you get just those cohesive hardliners, they could create a much more effective, deadlier, cohesive armed group. What you want to do is target armed organizations with a variety of policies that can sow different types of disagreement and infighting. You want to target them with repression sometimes, then with some conciliation, offer them some buyouts maybe. You want to maybe sow false information and discord among the group's leadership. So that way you're having all these different disagreements in an armed group and you're not putting them into very clear camps. But it's when you say only target them with oppression that you really galvanize very clear camps and ideological positions, and you can actually force more consensus by doing that. But you already wanna use a, a variety of interventions, not just rely on conciliation or repression, and try to create these multi-dimensional splits, that I call them. Mm. Okay, well, I just have one concluding question, mm -hmm. I suppose, and that's, uh, just kind of a broad question, you can take sure. it wherever you want, but do you think that the world's a more dangerous place today than it was maybe like dirt after 9-11 or something like that? Like how do you, that how do you assess, <laughs> again, it kind of circles back to my first rant at the beginning of the <laughs> yeah. podcast. Your about, question of 13 questions. Yeah. yeah, my question of 13 questions. And just, again, I might be more pessimistic minded, but I, and just in, the, in this new technological world that we're living in, yeah. I'm constantly shocked that there's not more violence. And I, I, maybe that's just something wrong with my mind. But I don't know. I want to be either told that, yes, you should be worried, or no, <laughs> everything's fine, kid. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't even know if that was a question. All right. Let's, let's see. Where do I begin with Just that? Take um, that wherever you want. So basically, are we safer? Should we be worried? You know, what's the deal? The state of affairs in the world? Uh, definitely be worried is my take. Uh, no. Well, there are some people like there are some people I read like Stephen Pinker who right. came out with this book. I was just thinking of his work, the Better, Better Angels, Better of, Angels our of Our Nature, where he has all these graphs about how human well-being has improved exponentially over the past couple of centuries, and how we've lifted sure so has. many, yep. yeah, which it has, and we've lifted so many people out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And you know, then I'll read people like the transhumanists, like Ray Kurzweil, who will tell me that. Um, you know, we might solve the problem of aging within our lifetime and maybe merge ourselves with machines. Mm -hmm. And all of these good things are coming with the assistance of technology. And it's leading to this kind of techno utopia. Yeah. And I'm just very, um, I don't trust, I, I just innately don't trust a lot of these things. And I think, um, I don't know, I'm more scared about the direction that technology is going, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty about where technology is taking us, right? What are the implications of obviously big concepts like artificial intelligence? You see big debates between Elon Musk and Bill Gates, for instance, over what's gonna happen here. Are we approaching the singularity in a Terminator style uh, Skynet or are we not? Or is it totally peaceful? Elon Musk thinks we need real safeguards for it and it could be pretty dangerous if I remember their positions correctly. Um, on the other hand, it could have, there could be distributional effects, negative effects of AI as well. So what do you do when you have robotics and AI that can take the jobs of most people? Then you have lots of people out of work. You have a totally different labor force and economy. So I think we often think about the direct implications of technology without thinking about the indirect implications too. So there are definitely things to worry about. And in terms of Stephen Pinker's argument, I don't really have a firm position. I've never really waded too much into this literature because I find there are so many moving parts to understand rates of violence over time. Yeah. Uh, Tanisha Fazal and others have really great work looking at, she's a professor at the University of Minnesota, 
looking at how medical technology is one factor that's contributed to why wars seem less lethal over time. It's not actually that people are fighting less or are less lethal in their actual combat, but medical technology has gotten so much more effective that fewer people are dying in the battlefield and we can save more of them. Mm. So you compare what happens from a gunshot wound in World War One to now, World War One, you get gangrene, you might die. Nowadays, you can be maybe have some sort of procedure in the battlefield to save you. So that could be something explaining part of Pinker's results and others' results too. But I think you're right that everything feels like it's going to hell nowadays. And as to why, I think part of it is technology. So one of these indirect effects is that we're learning about everything. You know, 20 years ago, we weren't even learning about or hearing necessarily about every small development in Indonesia to Afghanistan to South America. And now all that information is being flooded to us on breaking news alerts and on Twitter and on this and that. And we're seeing images of it too. So it might not necessarily be that things are actually worse. Yeah. It could be in some cases because, once again, because of the changes in the global economy and, and the rise of populism, which is definitely a thing that's affecting many countries from Western Europe to Asia to the United States, and we're also just seeing a lot more of it, too. So maybe it just feels, to a certain extent, like things are worse. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely think that might be what's going on as well. And I feel like there's also, as we solve more and more problems, we, we become hyper-focused on the problems that are still remaining. So yeah. there's that fact in conjunction with the fact that we all have social media and iPhones <laughs> and any injustice that occurs, everyone's a journalist now. So anyone yeah. can just film it and it's immediately posted onto your Twitter. Yeah, and you brought up a great point earlier that about the global reduction in poverty rates. I mean, this is something that's had a drastic decrease just in our lifetimes in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. And no one talks about that, right? No one's talking about the fact that we've reduced poverty, I think, by over half in the last 20 or so years, but they're focused on all the bad things that are happening too. So I think if you measure the good and the bad, I don't know where we end up, but I think it's definitely less pessimistic than what we probably would imagine otherwise. Well, I think that's a good spot to end it. <laughs> yeah, <sounds good. laughs> I'll, I'll take that. Um, thank you again for doing this. I appreciate it. Of course. Happy to do it. It's fun.